If your skin doesn't know whether to break out or wrinkle, if you're caught between planning the third grade class party and researching retirement plans, or if you want to work out but the idea of CrossFit makes your 40-something knees ache, you've come to the right place. Welcome to This Unmillennial Life. I'm your host, Reagan Jones, and welcome to today's episode. If you tuned into last week's episode of the podcast, you know that I am not afraid to tackle topics that are seemingly taboo for conversation in the mainstream media. And while today's topic is probably not the one that you're going to bring up at your holiday Christmas party this year, I hope that you will find the information that we share in today's episode affectionately known as the poop episode, something that actually will have a positive impact in your overall assessment of your own health. Now, I joked last week when I started promoting the menstrual cycle episode that probably most unmillennial women had been having periods as long as they could remember and may have felt like there really wasn't much that we could tell you about your menstrual cycle that you didn't already know. But if you tuned into that episode, you know that Emily Field shared a wealth of information about how your hormone levels during your menstrual cycle fluctuate and impact things like your physical fitness and your moods, which you probably did know, and your metabolism. So I hope in good faith you'll go with me on this journey of the poop episode and really realize that it's worth tuning in. We are actually going to share with you some information today that I'm guessing will be new information to you, even though you've been pooping your whole life. The guest that I'm going to have on today is one of my favorite registered dietitian colleagues. Her name is Kate Scarlotta. She is a New York Times best-selling author. She is an international speaker on gut nutrition, and she specializes in digestive health. And as you will hear as I get into this episode, she and I share a mutual love of the discussion of poop. So with that, I'm going to jump right into my interview with Kate Scarlotta. Kate, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. I told someone just earlier today that I was getting ready to speak with you and record this interview. And they said, well, you know, what's the topic? And I said, it's going to be the poop episode. And they were (laughs) astonished that I was willing to uh, devote an entire podcast to poop. But uh, I am because I know that it is actually, first of all, something we all do. Second of all, such an important and overall indicator of health. And you and I have talked about on a number of different occasions at different conferences, uh, the fact that there is this stigma about talking about it, but the reality is, is understanding it from a health perspective can be so important for people. And I think that's especially true for women uh, at our age. And so I'm going to turn it then over to you as the expert to kind of explain why poop really is an important topic for us to talk about. Absolutely. You know, it, it is it is amazing in the U.S., especially our culture really shies away from talking about digestive health, and these topics are just really stigmatized. But um, pooping is a very normal part of everyday life, and it, you know, there is definitely a degree of individuality. Some people don't poop every day, and that's absolutely fine. Um, other people poop, you know, normally three times a day, and that's fine too. Um, but there should be some sort of your normal, and when the normal, you know, 
three times a week turns into once a week, you know, you want to take notice because, you know, pooping is really an indicator of your overall health. And it can give you some, um, you know, information about your thyroid, for instance. If you suddenly go from pooping three or four times a week to once a week, that could be a sign of, you know, a thyroid condition, which regulates motility of the GI tract. Or perhaps your poop becomes stinky and odorous or like mashed potatoes. That could indicate fat malabsorption, which would give us some indication that perhaps the pancreas isn't working as well as it should, or perhaps the, the gallbladder isn't releasing bile like it should, or it may even give us some indication that a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is, has occurred, and this is when bacteria re, uh, kind of accumulate in the small intestine where they don't belong and kind of inactivate our bile, which is responsible for helping us uh, uh, digest fat properly, and now this could give us some indication that there is, you know, this condition, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it really does, um, you know, poop is an overall indicator of health and what's going on and when you deviate from normal, um, that should be addressed with your doctor. Okay, so from a from a normal versus not normal standpoint, what I hear you saying is that it's not as much about maybe looking at like a chart, for instance, and knowing exactly like I'm trying to have a digestive digestive system that is really on target with this, you know, this digestive process. But it's more about knowing like how you've been regular or frequency or consistency for over a, a period of time. And then that changes. Is that correct? You know what? That is a really good um, way to summarize it. Although I, you know, I didn't address this. I think that there is there is classification of what is the the ideal or more normal poop, and we do use that in in our clinic, um, and it does help define sort of what we're going for. And the chart we use in our clinic is, and in most gastroenterology clinics is called the Bristol stool chart. And there's a number of these, very easy to access online. Some of them are kind of funny, actually. Um, but what we're looking for is a three to a four, which is really a snake-like um, poop. Mm -hmm. and um, with smooth edges, and that's, you know, that tends to be um, more ideal. If something is very loose or maybe like even deer pellets, like small, small little um, droplets, mm -hmm. those are poops that really would kind of be on the opposite spectrum of what we're looking for as a normal poop and might require some modifications either in the diet or with some help of, um, some laxatives or something to really kind of help um, the individual have um, a good cleansing bowel movement. We don't want you storing a lot of stool in your colon for a long time. We want to, you know, it's good to empty that. And, um, and we also want to make sure that you're not having, you know, just loose watery stools where you're, where you're actually losing some electrolytes and that can affect how you feel. Can you talk then about both ends of the spectrum? I mean, you mentioned briefly, you said, you know, one of the things with someone who would be consistently having loose stool is they might have an electrolyte imbalance. That'd be one way that it's affecting their health. Um, but you also talked about, you know, just wanting that, that bowel emptied. For people who, you know, maybe are less tuned in to health, can you just kind of explain? 
explain why both of those ends of the uh, both of those ends of the spectrum are are not what we are aiming for for an overall you know uh, healthy life. Exactly. So you know, diarrhea was as I mentioned, you know, more likely to lose some electrolytes with that as well. But it might also be that that uh, food is moving so quickly through the, the small intestine that you're not getting like adequate nutrient absorption. So, you know, discussing diarrhea with your primary care doctor is really important. And we also want to make sure that we're not missing something. For instance, you know, a gallbladder disorder or pancreatic disorder or um, even celiac disease, which is occurs in one in a hundred people, but the majority, I think it's 96% of Americans that have celiac are remain under undiagnosed. Um, on the other spectrum of that, having very solid stool, like these, uh, what we would call Bristol stool chart number one, which is hard lumps that are difficult to pass, that can contribute to difficulty having a bowel movement and can contribute, contribute, excuse me, to um, hemorrhoids and um, potentially diverticulitis. So you want to make sure that um, that you're moving things through and that may be an indicator again of like hypothyroidism or some other condition that slows the motility. Um, A condition that we see in my practice a lot and most of the clients that I see have irritable bowel syndrome and the bulk of them have constipation. Um, Irritable bowel syndrome just in brief is a motility disorder um, that is marked with having abdominal pain and um, it can be quite debilitating. But in the patients that we see in clinic, um, some of them that are constipated have a condition called dysnergic defecation. And I know it's kind of a big word, Mm -hmm. but um, what this means is that the rectum um, actually contracts. So it tightens Mm -hmm. during a bowel movement instead of relaxes. And so you don't have adequate cleansing of this, of the colon um, on having a bowel movement. And this is a, a risk factor that we see with constipation as well. Okay, so if, Kate, people are sitting here and they're listening to this and they're thinking, wow, I thought everything that I was doing was normal on a normal basis, huh. but, but I'm, I'm sensing that it's not. What's the first thing that, for them to do? Should they, you know, start consulting Dr. Google? Should they talk to their primary care physician? Do they need to be immediately worried and go see a gastroenterologist? What's the best first step for people to take if they find themselves in this not normal poop camp? The first step really would be to talk to the primary care. And I think, you know, Um, It's really interesting. There was a survey that just came out recently where they interviewed primary care doctors and up to 70% of them failed to ask questions about GI symptoms. And yet so many people suffer. And because most people are embarrassed to talk to their doctor, um, this often doesn't get brought up and and people just kind of struggle um, and just don't do anything about their symptoms. Um, But, you know, doctors have heard everything and it's really important. So to start with the primary care doctor, just to discuss some changes or, you know, the concern that you think, you know, your bowel movements aren't really where they need to be and what are some first line steps for you? Because it's very individual and the doctor, especially your primary care, is going to know you well enough to kind of put some of the pieces of your personal puzzle together to really kind of come up with some first line strategies. It may just be simply a little fiber. We use a lot of Metamucil can be very effective at softening the bowel movement for individual with constipation. It might be trial of a probiotic, which can be very helpful in regulating bowel movements, 
or it may be that, you know what, it's, it needs a little bit more more um, guidance and a referral to a gastroenterologist is in order. Okay, I would love to kind of stop there for just a moment and, moment and dive a little deeper into the two things that you recommended for people who okay. maybe are um, needing a little bit of help and you know are not really at that point of needing a referral to a gastroenterologist. You mentioned Metamucil, which I think when yeah. people hear that, they think, oh my gosh, I think that's something like my great-grandmother stirred into water right. years ago. And I'm right. going to go ahead and yeah, I think you know this. I've probably told you this before. And yeah. there are friends of mine who know this. I, on a regular basis, especially when I travel, either take Metamucil with me or I, when I am home, Metamucil has um, little fiber wafers yeah. that I eat fairly regularly. And I don't eat a ton of them. I eat like one a day. But I have found that they make such a difference in just the overall um, like digestive quality. process and the digestive quality. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kate has said a couple of different times something about motility issues. Can you explain like what motility actually means in terms of like your digestive system? Yeah. So some, you know, some people have a very fast moving colon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, small intestine. So everything kind of moves through quickly. And in that case, often um, you're more prone to diarrhea. Um, you know, throughout the digestive process, your body really needs some time to to get all those nutrients into the bloodstream and to to siphon off that water. But if everything is kind of moving quickly, then that motility is considered rapid and more, you're going to be more prone to, to diarrhea. And then when motility is kind of sluggish and some people just have a plain lazy intestine and they'll need a little, a little help with either some laxatives or these these individuals often tolerate like a little bit of um, caffeine, even a little coffee in the morning um, can kind of give that little extra jolt to the colon to kind of keep things going because their intestine by nature is just sluggish. Okay. So then so, from a Metamucil standpoint, you know, what I was saying about the, like these wafers yeah. and then like the little packets that you can take on the go, you know, I take those with me because the the Metamucil just does something to kind of regulate that motility and keep things moving just in a really nice process and keep the consistency really, really good. And I think people, when I share that, they're just shocked that I'm this 42-year-old woman and I, you know, I don't not a, don't work for Metamucil. I'm not a spokesperson for them, but I've seen right. what a big difference that it makes. And um, I you know, just kind of share that to say to people that when Kate gives that as a recommendation, that's not really a recommendation that's far off and really something that you think about like, well, nobody's doing that because it does make a big difference. And I don't know, Kate, if you want to take a minute and talk about why it makes such a big difference. Exactly. Well, it's a very interesting um, fiber. It is, you know, it forms a viscous um, solution so that viscosity really seems to help um, along with the soluble fiber in Metamucil, really soften the stool. And it's an interesting um, fiber in the sense that actually Metamucil can help both constipation and diarrhea. So that um, it will soak up some of the extra water that's in the colon, which would aid someone um, if they're tending towards um, diarrhea, it'll actually soak it up and bring it into the stool. Um, and at that same, with the same concept, if the stool is dry, it's actually adding water to the stool. And it kind of prevent. it's, it's not really, um, the, the, 
the type of fiber and the way it forms in the gut, it's not really that accessible by gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. So it remains intact. So it adds bulking to the stool as well. So it has a softening effect for constipation, the pulling of the water and sponge-like effect for people with diarrhea, and then adding bulk, which can really help um, with just passing the stool. So um, it really is the fiber supplement with the best evidence um, and um, really can be quite, um, you know, magical for some people, not everyone, um, but some people really find Metamucil to be, um, you know, a great adjunct to their healthcare uh, regimen. And I will say again that, you know, when people are traveling, if I could give one piece of advice as someone who travels fairly frequently um, and, and sometimes has some really long, extensive travel, you know, you guys know as you're sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, when I'm traveling, that is one of the times where I'm eating at weird hours or eating meals that I didn't plan. I'm just not on my routine and I just feel completely out of kilter that, you know, we're talking about this today as a somewhat taboo topic, but not pooping while you're traveling really makes you feel terrible. And that's where my personal recommendation comes into don't discount the benefit that something like the Metamucil, which is actually, you know, the brand name for psyllium, psyllium or psyllium husk, husk. which is the fiber right. that it's made up from. Um, you can certainly find psyllium that's not as easily dissolvable and flavored the way Metamucil is. But I think the Metamucil product really works from that standpoint. Uh, you know, right. it's something to consider taking with you when you travel. Um, I would just give that personal recommendation. Now, what you mentioned as a part of the fact that it works so well because it remains intact and it's not as accessible to the bacteria in your your um, gastrointestinal system is, you know, one of the great sides of, of Metamucil and psyllium. But the flip side is the other recommendation that you gave, which are probiotics that uh, are the healthy bacteria in your GI system that want certain types of fiber to feed off of. So Metamucil is not one of them, and that's one of the good things about it. But I'd love to now talk about two things. One, your recommendations for people on on probiotics in general, you know, what they should be looking for or just, you know, general recommendations of of, uh, foods that are rich in probiotics. And then I'd like for you to also, Kate, explain for people why a fiber-rich diet is important for them when they are adding probiotics to their diet and really kind of explain that whole delicate balance? Well, you know, we talk about just probiotic bacteria that live in our gut, our commensal microbes. These are microbes that are known to have beneficial effects to the human body. And, you know, we have them in us already. And fiber, um, different types of fiber feed those microbes that we already have inside our gut. And there's prebiotic fibers in particular that um, are, you know, our food sources for those microbes that live in our gut. If we take a probiotic supplement, that's different than the microbes that live in our gut, but these are microbes that we know are beneficial to the human host or the human body. Um, And, you know, the evidence for probiotic use supplement-wise you know, it's it's there, it's limited still, and it's really still quite in its infancy, even though we've been talking about probiotics for a long time. So, you know, when it comes to taking just a generic probiotic, I don't just 
tell everyone to take a probiotic. Mm-hmm. However, um, there are some probiotics that are very specific to the symptom that an individual may come to see me in my practice for. So if they tend to be an individual that is prone to diarrhea, they may benefit from a probiotic um, namely uh, Culturel, Lactobacillus um, GG, and this supplement seems to really help, um, this probiotic supplement seems to really work well for my clients. And there's a really good resource that um, anyone can tap into. It's the U.S. Clinical Guide to Probiotics, and it comes in an app form, um, and you can see there's access to it online as well. Um, and this provides um, a list of probiotics that have been actually researched and have evidence to support different indications. So again, when I'm working with a client, I want to select a probiotic specifically that has benefits for the symptom that we are trying to correct. When we look at food that has probiotics, um, you know, yogurts and things like that, those are beneficial. They're at very low doses generally speaking, compared to what you would find in a probiotic supplement. That doesn't mean that they're less beneficial. We just don't have a ton of research looking at yogurt specifically um, and outcomes from a GI standpoint. There are some Danon products like Activia um, that has been shown to um, help with constipation. So there are some yogurt products as well. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of a general quick and dirty synopsis um, when it comes to probiotics and the prebiotics, which in general refer to fibers that are poorly absorbed that feed healthy gut bacteria. One note that I want to mention is prebiotics, that definition has received sort of a recent makeover. And in addition to um, fibers that feed healthy gut microbes that live in our colon, um, they've also included polyphenol-rich foods. Um, And polyphenols are in my favorite foods, um, wine, (laughs) coffee, Mm -hmm. um, but also berries. And so polyphenols also function as prebiotics, meaning that they also feed healthy gut microbes. First of all, I did not know that polyphenols had any kind of prebiotic benefit. I am thrilled to hear that because wine, Mm -hmm. coffee, and berries are (laughs) three foods and drinks from the gods. So that's great to know. Yeah, I think it's fantastic because not everyone can tolerate the prebiotic fibers, um, especially individuals with IBS. They have a limited threshold Mm -hmm. for tolerating some of those prebiotic fibers, such as that when I say prebiotic fibers, some of the foods that are rich in prebiotics naturally are onion and garlic and wheat. Mm -hmm. um, And those tend to be trigger foods for many, not all, um, but for many with irritable bowel syndrome. And another one that I I know, and I think we've talked about offline before, that's a prebiotic fiber that's becoming increasingly prevalent in our food supply. And I think just based on the topic that we're talking about that I'd like for you to touch on is inulin or chicory root, because that's a prebiotic fiber. And it shows up now in things like yogurt and in granola bars. So, um, you know, I'd love for you to just touch on that one as well, because for some people, I think it can be really beneficial, but for others, maybe not so much. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. So chicory root is um, in a number of products and a lot of the kinds products, kind bar products, Mm -hmm. fiber one products. And for some people, it's an instant recipe for gas and pain. Mm -hmm. 
So um, again, it's just trying to learn your threshold. If every time you have a kind bar, you're suffering with gas and it's painful, um, that might be something you'd want to admit, you know, from your diet. Um, if you have fiber one bars every day and have normal bowel movements and your belly feels great all day and you're not bloated and gassy, um, by all means, you know, definitely keep keep that going. Um, but chicory root is a prebiotic fiber, but it is highly fermentable. And so it does tend to cause a lot of gas in the GI tract. And for some people, uh, that gas gets trapped and can kind of, um, you know, kind of aggravate the pain sensors in the gut. Just so people kind of understand like what's happening there. When Kate says it's highly fermentable, you know, the bacteria, the healthy bacteria that's living down in your gut, we want to feed it. We want to give it stuff to feed off of and, and grow and, and be healthy. And fiber does that. That's why one of the reasons, but that's one of the reasons, you know, we recommend a, a high fiber diet to people. However, in cases like what she just mentioned with inulin or chicory root, uh, when there's so much fermentation and it's getting trapped and it's just not agreeing with people, then that's not actually turning out to be as much of a benefit as we want. So just kind of understanding that the bacteria is fermenting that fiber. And you know when that's happening too rapidly, uh, it can cause discomfort and pain. And I think that what I typically try to help people understand is that fiber is so helpful in so many ways for so many people, but not all fiber is equal. You know, the, we talked right. about the fiber in Metamucil and what it does. That's completely different than the fiber that's added to a kind bar and what it does. Or, for instance, the fiber that's in Fiber One cereal or Brand Bud cereal, that's co also completely different. And so, you know, really tuning into how do these foods make me feel? Do they cause gas? Do they make my poop not happy? Oh, my kids and I always talk about happy poop. That is a goal around our house is happy poop. Yes. And if it doesn't make your poop happy, then that's something that you want to tune into and understand that it may not be that it's just that you can't eat fiber. It may just be that there are particular fibers that bo that affect you in different ways. Exactly. And also, too, that, you know, because these gut microbes, they're getting used to what you're feeding them. And sometimes it's you know, volume overload if you're having three kind bars in one day. And it might be that one kind bar is perfectly fine. So, you know, dose uh, tolerance is a, is a big thing. It's not an all or nothing. And your body can kind of adjust to this change in diet if you're a little bit more gentle. So, you know, you were talking a lot about fiber is good. Yay, fiber. But fiber is something that you want to kind of add to your diet slowly along with water um, to, you know, kind of let, let the microbes adjust to the change in food source um, slowly. So you're not really, you know, adding Metamucil and having two fiber one bars right. day one. You know, you, you, you subtly kind of uh, change, change things. It's interesting, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I was at a conference recently, a digestive health conference, and they were, they did a, a mice, you know, a, a different kind of study looking at different um, mice on a high fiber diet versus a low FODMAP, uh, low fiber diet. And they found on this kind of fiber free diet that actually the microbes in the gut ate the inside of our in, intestine is a, a mucin layer and it's a very protective it keeps the barrier all the microbes and everything inside the GI tract inside instead of getting into our bloodstream and uh, and causing um, you know various effects 
And on this very fiber-free diet, the mice, the microbes in the mice started eating this mucin layer because the mucin layer, which is this protective barrier coat, is also carbohydrates. And if the microbes are not getting the fiber they need, the, the thought is that they will actually start breaking down the mucin layer, which is not a goal. (laughs) So we do all need to get fiber. And it's just, again, trying to find where that sweet spot is for you and what types of fibers work best for your body. That is very interesting. And I'm going to now put you a little bit on the spot. I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you about this, but I think I can't do a poop episode and not bring this (laughs) up because I know it's an area you have knowledge of. I want to take a minute and pull the curtain back on something that I really feel like is taboo in the poop world. And that is the discussion about fecal transplants. So I know you know about this subject. I'd love for you to give a little bit of an overview for people and maybe just take a little bit of the stigma away from something that I feel like when people first hear it, they think that can never happen. That is the craziest thing in the world. Exactly. I can remember when I first heard about it and it is so it is a little overwhelming. You're like, uh, we're taking someone else's poop and we're transplanting it into another human being. And that seems so off kilter. However, the science in this area is really kind of exploding. So there's really two ways to do a fecal microbial transplant. And um, basically, um, the first is taking someone else's um, stool that's been kind of cleaned out and tested. And what is in stool is a microbial community. And what's interesting about really looking at a stool specimen is that these are microbes that have been cohabitating and playing nicely together. It's very different than trying to make a probiotic supplement and kind of throwing different microbes in and we're really not sure how they play well. But in a in a stool sample, they've already kind of been living, cohabitating and playing well together. And um, so the um, gastroenterologist working with a patient that has an altered um, you know, GI problem. Most often in what the, where the evidence for using a fecal microbial transplant is in C. difficile infection, which is a very risky um, diarrheal illness infection that can be life-threatening. And patients um, with this, if they have C. diff, they are treated with antibiotics. However, if they get it again, they're considered a candidate for receiving a fecal microbial transplant. And it's either put through a colonoscopy, um, you know, apparatus, or um, there are actually pills where they put, um, it's 30 pills, believe it or not, um, where they um, are encapsulated with, with, with poop that's been cleaned out. And the individual will take about 15 in one day and then come back to the, to the um, doctor and do 15 the next day. And that sample of bacteria in the poop will completely change the gut microbiome. And in someone with C. difficile, it's, it's quite um, remarkable. I think it's like a 98% effective rate for treating um, C. difficile infectious diarrhea. Um, however, there we've had, I think, a couple trials with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. One failed to show benefit and the other one showed benefits. So now they're doing more studies. Um, irritable bowel syndrome can be quite debilitating for people. And, um, and there's a number of 
people that are very willing to try this. Um, and they're also looking at it for um, inflammatory bowel disease. And I don't think the last I checked, it, the research wasn't that promising um, in, in inflammatory bowel disease, but they're trying, you know, lots of different studies. I think they've actually looked at it for obesity and mm -hmm. as well as diabetes, because we know the gut microbes play a role beyond just digestive problems. They're very well connected with any dis chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, um, very connected to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a huge epidemic and growing um, it, all around the globe, but really in the U.S. Um, so this is, you know, everyone's really getting in tune to the gut and the microbes and what we can do to enhance our health. It's a very interesting area. It is. And, you know, we're devoting this podcast today specifically just to being the poop episode. But my goal <laughs> is to definitely have Kate back on to talk about IBS, I and mean, that's a big part of her practice, and I know that's something that affects so many people, and Kate and I have talked about before, that it's the type of illness that can be debilitating from even a lifestyle standpoint of just, you know, kind of trying to plan out your life so that you're not struck with these um you know, bouts of, of digestive issues that, that impact your life. I'd love to talk to Kate, you know, more about probiotics and gut health. So I definitely want to have you back. But for today, is there anything else that we um, haven't touched on that you think is important for people to know? Yeah, I think we should do a little bit about stool color. What's yeah. normal, what's not normal? Because I think sometimes, um, you know, this can kind of help pinpoint a problem or maybe not a problem. Um, so I'm going to just kind of run through a couple colors and what that may or may not mean. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people will really be, uh, you know, shooken and will say, my poop was green. What does that mm -hmm. mean? And um, it may be green because of um, purple food coloring. So if you're prone to chowing down uh, big bottles of purple Gatorade or um, ice uh, popsicles that are grape flavored, um, that will actually, um, some of the pigments in the purple or in green beverages can definitely contribute to um, more green color. And also, um, if you have diarrhea that's very green, that can be an indication that um, there's bile in the diet, in, in, in bile-induced um, diarrhea, can be from a number of different causes. Um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth I mentioned, but then also just um, some people's gallbladder or liver, they're just making too much bile that their body is unable to handle it. And they may benefit from a bile acid sequestrant or work with their doctor to figure out that this is part of their um, sort of loose diarrhea um, symptoms. Mm -hmm. The other um, color is a light color like um, yellow, mm -hmm. and that may indicate uh, fat in the stool. So lighter stools may be reflective of a problem with bacterial overgrowth or some kind of malabsorption disorder that may be related to the pancreas or the, um, the gallbladder um, and maybe even celiac disease. Uh, black stools tend to... Um, relate to blood in the stool, particularly in an upper GI bleed, which so the blood as it dries out becomes darker. So um, it might be uh, 
you know, a bleed in the stomach, and that would require um, immediate follow-up with the doctor. Um, but other things like Pepto-Bismol and iron supplements, too, may also make the stool black, but it's worth um, discussing with your doctor. And then bright red in the stool often is due to hemorrhoids, mm-hmm. lower GI bleeding, um, but also, you know, cranberries or beets. Mm-hmm. I know a number of people have had, you know, a big beet, side dish and then panic the next morning as they see red in the toilet. Um, So if you've had beets, it's likely the beets have arrived in the toilet, but um, certainly be cautious and cognizant if you see blood. That should be uh, brought up to your doctor. Yeah, that is, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that actually (laughs) is a scary moment. And even me as a dietitian, you know, that's happened to me. And you have that, that, that moment of panic. And then you realize, right. you know, you had like, the, Oh my gosh, I, I have cancer. And <laughs> then you're like, Oh, I had a beet salad yesterday. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, Kate, thank you so much for being um, so willing to talk about this. You know, I, I know that you and I have talked about this is a topic I can talk about. Um, yeah, forever, just because I do think it's such an important part of our of how we feel on a daily basis that we're completely unwilling to talk about and unwilling to acknowledge and, and somewhat unwilling to, you know, tap into all the things that are out there to help us because there's some sort of stigma attached to it. And I just want people to feel their best. And then to also be self-aware so that there, if there is something that's happening that needs attention, they're not so stigmatized that they don't seek out that attention. Now, one of the things that I'd love for you to do is to share with everyone how they can find you and follow you online. I know you have some very exciting things coming. And I would say to my listeners that Kate is a wealth of knowledge on gut health. We have literally just scratched the surface today. And if you are someone who suffers from from any type of digestive issue or have someone who in your life does following Kate is going to be the one of the best things that you can do to get yourself up to speed uh, with the knowledge that she shares. So Kate, tell everybody what you have coming and how they can find you online. Oh, thanks for this opportunity. So yes, I have um, a website with a lot of uh, various um, free handouts and resources and you can um, find me at Kate scarlata.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-C-A-R-L-A-T-A. And I also am active on Instagram under Kate Scarlata and on Twitter, um, Kate Scarlata underscore RD. And then I have a new book coming up um, specifically for the irritable bowel syndrome crowd. Um, The title is Low FODMAP Diet Step-by-Step. And this is a book that I partnered with a former Bon Appetit chef to come up with some really yummy, delicious recipes for individuals following the low FODMAP diet, which is a scientific-based diet um, that modifies some fermentable carbohydrates to help manage symptoms for patients that experience um, really a a difficult digestive um, tract. So I have that. And then coming next year um, in April 2018, we're, we're rolling out once again and my I Believe in Your Story campaign, which is really geared towards raising funds uh, for research in IBS and providing a supportive place for individuals that suffer with digestive distress to come forward and share their stories. In solidarity, we do uh, lots of pictures on Instagram as a group and share the I Believe in Your Story hashtag as a really way to raise awareness. 
and and really raise support. Um, just in brief, the NIH, which provides the research funding for IBS, only um, funds about 12 cents per IBS patient for research. It's very pathetic. And so I've kind of taken it upon myself to really um, be, um, you know, sort of a motivator um, to let people know that we can make a difference if we all put a couple dimes together and, um, and fund some research to make some difference for people that are suffering with this condition. And I will put a link in the show notes to not only uh, Kate's blog, but also uh, the mention of the I Believe in Your Story hashtag that she referenced so people can see that. You can always access the show notes from whatever podcast app that you're listening to uh, by just looking at uh, the information on this particular episode. And I'll link over to that for Kate. I'll um, also link over to the probiotic reference that she gave earlier in the show so that people can find that. So, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing all this information. I really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you so much for having me on today. Today's podcast is brought to you by Healthy Aperture, the web's first and only dietitian curated healthy recipe discovery site. With nearly 90,000 recipes to browse in categories ranging from gluten-free to vegetarian to healthy desserts, Healthy Aperture is sure to have a recipe that's just right for you. Head over to healthyaperture.com to learn more. Welcome back. Switching gears to close out the show, I want to share two things with you. First, my story of how unmillennial I found myself this week. Here I am as a podcaster, very savvy with new technology. I pride myself on being an early adopter. It's an almost millennial characteristic of me that I have adopted from our younger peers. Just on Friday, before this episode launched, I was hosting a Facebook Live for my website, Healthy Aperture, which you hear often as um, a promo here on the podcast. And I have done Facebook Lives from almost the very beginning of when Facebook Live started. I've had seasons where I wasn't doing as many Facebook Lives, but I will say I am not new to the platform. And I prepped this Facebook Live. I had everything ready to make this awesome recipe. And as I got into the Facebook Live, probably five minutes in, one of my dear friends, you've heard her on the show, Deanna, she was in the Airbnb episode, commented, and I was so excited as I was making the recipe to see what she was saying. And what she was saying was that my Facebook Live was sitting on its side. And so in my haste to try to fix it, I ended up turning the camera and flipping it upside down and just honestly looking like a total fool. And it was in that moment, although I persevered and I pressed on, which is I think one of my very good unmillennial characteristics because we are a very resilient generation, I found myself thinking, how freaking unmillennial can I be? What an idiot I must look like to every person who is scrolling through Facebook now and seeing me upside down. Now, 
With that resilience, I did decide to download that video and tidy it up a little bit with some creative editing. So if any of you head over to the Healthy Aperture Facebook page and want to see the recipe I demoed, it was a holiday marinated Christmas cheddar wreath. You can see the edited version. You won't get to see the upside down and the sideways. But I share that with you all so that you, when you encounter new technology, you will know that here is someone, myself, who of all the things that I don't know how to do, typically technology is not one of those things that trips me up. I had the most tripped up version of Facebook Live that you can possibly have. So unmillennial friends, don't sweat it. It happens. We press on because we are that unmillennial, very resilient generation. Now with that, I wanted to just leave you with a couple of fun recommendations that were dropped into the This Unmillennial Life podcast Facebook group via an article that was shared in there. The article appeared on chicagonow.com and it was an article written by Mary Tyler Mom. You may have heard of her. She's a very popular blogger about all the shows that she watched in 2017 that saved her. And I actually want to just pick out a couple that she mentions to share with you because these are ones that are on my radar and I want to see if you guys are watching these. Okay, so um, she talks about House of Cards and Stranger Things both of which I think are are typically super popular, you probably know about. Um, She also mentions Orange is the New Black, which is a favorite that's been around for years, and Ozark, which has appeared here on the podcast in one of my favorite segments, the segment that I affectionately title, If I Had a VCR, I'd Tape This. Ozark was one of my recommendations. But then she also mentions two programs that I would love to hear from you all if you've watched and if you love, and those are Mindhunter, which she says is a show about the FBI's first profiler of serial killers totally up my alley because I will tell you right now my husband and I are finishing up Dexter. Dexter is one of those shows that I feel like has been around forever and I don't know why I was dragging my feet to watch it. I absolutely love that show. It is the type of show that makes me sometimes question my sanity and morality that I can be so affectionate for the main character who is so very clearly flawed. And without giving too much away, I'll just say Dexter is a serial killer himself. And he is the most lovable character I find in in that series. So Mindhunter sounds like it would be right up my alley. So let me know if you are watching Mindhunter and what you thought about it. You can always contact me on the This Unmillennial Life website. There's a good contact page there. You can leave me a voicemail or send me an email or better yet, tweet me at Reagan Jones RD or join the This Unmillennial Life Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups slash This Unmillennial Life. So that was show number one. And then the other one was The Fall. And The Fall is one that I'm really interested intrigued about because my husband actually came home and told me that was a recommendation that had been given to him. And he is usually not the Netflix connoisseur of the family. I'm the one that's usually bringing home the recommendations. But I had heard of The Fall. And then I'm just going to be honest with you. I find the lead character, Jamie Dornan, to be quite attractive. Many of you may know him as the on-screen version of the wildly popular book series that I feel like many unmillennial women are familiar with. Fifty Shades of Grey, Jamie Dornan plays Christian Grey. He is the lead character in this 
crime drama, which is also about a serial killer. Jamie Dornan in this particular instance is the serial killer in the series The Fall. So I would love it if you guys would let me know if those are worthy of my title. If I had a VCR, I would tape this. Or if you have recommendations for VCR worthy Netflix binging shows, again, you can join the This Unmillennial Live Facebook group. We would love to have your recommendations. I even have a document there that I've started where people are adding in the shows that they like so that I always have a good supply of things to binge watch on Netflix when I'm wanting to get in touch with my more millennial self. And with that, you've reached the end of another episode of This Unmillennial Life. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to let you know that as of today, This Unmillennial Life is also now being streamed on the Spotify app. If you're not familiar with Spotify as an unmillennial, let me tell you about it. Spotify is one of the best places to basically play DJ for yourself, put together your own mixtape of playlists. It's where I get all of my music from. And now you can access This Unmillennial Life in the same app where you're making your playlists. As always, This Unmillennial Life is also available on Apple iTunes. It's always available on the thisunmillennialife.com website. And I'm proud to say that This Unmillennial Life is also featured in the NPR One app. The NPR One app is a great place to get up to date on all breaking news and interesting information and stories produced by NPR and some of their hand-picked programs. It's where I first discovered some of the NPR programs that I love, like Hidden Brain and How I Built This. So there are a number of different ways for you to listen to this unmillennial life. I hope that you will share with a friend over the holiday season and into the coming new year. And I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this unmillennial life podcast with host Reagan Jones. Musical support provided by Ben Williams at Kudzu Studio. Website support provided by Katie Widrick at MakeMediaOver.com. I'm Robin Plotkin of RobinSpite.com. And on behalf of the podcast, I invite you to join us next week for another episode. <laughs>